This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 20, recorded on April 27th, 2015. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the Average Guy TV studios here in Bellevue, Nebraska, and we post a show with world-class show now out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, of course you can contact us. Send us an email, jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can find us on Twitter, at Jay Collison. That's really the best account to use. We do have at the average guy TV that works as well but uh, I do some auto tweeting from that one so follow at Jay Collison and now you can call in those questions 402 478 8450 we'll play them right here on the program let's let's play stump the guys so give us some really hard questions Kevin is uh, is doing in response to that we'll talk about that here in a second and of course the average guy TV is powered by Maple Grove Partners web hosting secure reliable super fast super high speed super dependable Although a little, little blip today. For more information, visit Maple Grove Partners, maplegrovepartners.com. The best deal about that is I just say, hey, Christian, what's going on? He's like, that's fixed. So that's the greatest kind of tech support in the world, Christian. I appreciate that. Now, Cyber Frontiers is a part of the Geeks Network. You can find the links to this show and many other great podcasts out at thegeeksnetwork.com. All right, we kind of have a unique show tonight in the sense that we're crossing streams. You know, in Ghostbusters, they said, don't cross the streams, Ray. <laughs> but tonight we are crossing streams, and uh, Kevin uh, approached me and said, "Hey, I'd love to come on Cyber Frontiers and talk a little bit about big data cybersecurity from an enterprise perspective." And so, Kevin Schoonover, welcome to Cyber Frontiers. Great to have you. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, Kevin. So you're the director of engineering at uh, where you work at Aero ECS. What, what what's that mean? What's what is your real job there? So uh, I, I, I'm director of engineering for a company that doesn't engineer anything. <laughs> Arrow is one of the uh, largest distributors in the world, um, and we have a semiconductor side of our company, and we have a computer product side of our company, which is the Arrow ECS, and you can find us at arrowecs.com. Um, we are a distributor, so we represent product lines like IBM, HP, NetApp, EMC, uh, you know, lots of the networking product lines, lots of security product lines, and we sell those products to resellers who then sell them to end users. So my team is the engineering team that trains our reseller partners. We work as an extension to our vendors. We um, uh, help do architectural design as far as solution set designs. So we're kind of in the thick of it with converged infrastructure and mobility and big data and kind of the changing landscape of um, the the IT world, so to say. So as I've kind of kept in tune with what um, what the guys on Cyber Frontiers here have been talking about, a lot of times it's that that academic side versus kind of where we're at in the, in the field with these kind of things. So I thought it would be fun just to uh, kick around a few ideas, chat about some of the things that uh, I'm seeing, and see how that resonates with uh, what these guys are uh, working on and dealing with. Oh, very cool. We, we, you kind of titled it Challenges in a Real IT Department, and of course, these guys work both in the academic world as well in the real world as well. Mm -hmm. Both of them working for me and and uh, working at Gallup, so it's uh, it's good. It's great to have this conversation. So thanks for uh, being willing to come on. And you're a host on Home uh, on Home Gadget Geeks uh, all the time. That's when I referred to the streams crossing. You know, Home Gadget Geeks and Cyber Frontiers. Although the original guy that did that was Christian. Christian, welcome back to Cyber Frontiers. Thank you. It's good to be here, uh, surviving the trail of never-ending midterms and preparation for finals. And it's been a inundation of uh, work and trying to stay above water. But uh, I'm glad to be out here tonight, taking a break and uh, talking some good stuff. Awesome. And then his other partner, the other Batman, over there in the uh, the serial room wall, Ashton Webster. Ashton, how are you? I'm good. Looking forward to this podcast and uh, showing off my growing collection of serial boxes. So it's good to be here. Which will come off the wall here in about a month, right? Yeah, so we have... We'll have to get a picture for it. Take a good picture before it comes yeah. down. We'll have to add it to the Cyber Frontiers page. I have about 25 days, and then I go home for one day in New Jersey, and then I go to Omaha. Yeah, no, we're excited to have you. Yeah. It, it's For me, today I was like, oh, crap, these guys are going to be here pretty quick. I better get, yeah. better get my act together. So, But I only had to go about three, well, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe like six months before meeting you in person while Christian went like several years. So 
He did. He went like four years, I think, yeah. before we actually got to meet. So, Christian, why don't you lead us off in this? Might be the easiest thing to do here as we talk about. Well, first of all, let me pose this question to you. When you guys are doing this from an academic, right? We say that all the time from an academic perspective. What's the approach that Maryland takes to kind of bring an enterprise perspective to it as well? In other, in other words, the real world. What What are they doing to kind of keep it real, so to speak, for you guys? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we really try and get people to learn how to think uh, scholastically before anything else. Uh, that's kind of the mindset of an academic institution is get people asking the right questions, get them to learn the scientific process right, get them to understand how research works and what are the business processes behind being a scientist. Um, and so that's what we try and provide in the on-campus environment and then we say okay now go off into the real world and get some real-world uh, experience which more or less gets coined into um, wrapped into the term experiential learning so your internships and your summer experiences abroad and those kinds of things so the, the combination of those two we try and find that middle spot um, at least for computer scientists we really don't get them I guess thinking in the real-world practical skills that employers are trying to hire for until they're getting to their 400-level courses. Um, all of our undergraduate courses leading up to that, of course, are building those fundamental skills that they're going to need um, in a real job or in the enterprise. However, um, in those earlier stages, you're still kind of focusing on laying the foundation of how to think like a scientist, um, hence the term computer science, um, as opposed to, you know, being a software developer in industry and so forth. Yeah, very cool. Ashton, uh, let me ask you from a, from an internship standpoint, of course, we like to think those internships kind of prepare you for some of that. You're on... You've been working with us since early spring, but you did an internship last year. How do you feel like your internships have prepared you for some of what you think the enterprise might look like? Well, I mean, working for internships is definitely better practical application, better practical application practice than school. Uh, that's for sure. And I think that it's really changed the way that I see what software development and cybersecurity is in the real world. Uh, and not to say that academia isn't the real world when you get to research and things like that, but um, applying those skills is a lot more, it's, it's just very different. And I think that if you have not, if you don't have those skills by the time you graduate, it's going to pose a lot of challenges for you to kind of adapt on the fly. Um, so I'm really thankful that I've had those opportunities and I look forward to having some more. So yeah, yeah you'll, you'll get recommend to, you, them. you got plenty of time. You'll get to have quite a few in that. And Kevin... Let me ask you, and when we think about from an, from an enterprise perspective, how important is it for us to give them those experiences? Do you guys participate in some kind of internship program there at Arrow? We're, we're really trying to. The, the semiconductor side of our business does a lot. The computer product side, um, especially in what I do, I tend to hire experienced guys out of IT, and I'm always looking for not just the really smart IT guys, but I, I have to find those good communication skills and the ability to teach and train and, and you know, it... it uh, I almost have to explain it to a lot of folks because we've all we've all been to that party with the uh, the, the technical guy who you probably wouldn't invite to the party because they they just don't have the good interaction and the good function. So um, so we're trying to do a lot more. And actually, you know, the interesting thing is I think in the past we've always looked at IT from an experience level point of view, so that um, you know a lot of folks coming straight out of college didn't necessarily jump into IT. And when I look at a lot of the people in IT today, a lot of your you know, higher-end network administrators, storage administrators, um, you know, virtualization guys. Most of them didn't don't have college degrees, or a lot of them do not. So it's this focus on you know, big data, data science. Uh, it, it's really kind of changing how we're looking at IT and how we're looking at you know probably uh, more and more grabbing up people coming straight out of college and uh, applying them to kind of the needs of the the current IT departments. Yeah, we're finding at Gallup, we're just finding great value in in an internship program and mm -hmm. engaging the kids very very quickly and getting them you know engaged and younger. You know, we have a high school internship program as well. Uh, Ashton will get a chance to meet our high schoolers uh, this summer, and so great opportunity to see kind of the future. As these these kids are very very bright coming out of high school, and uh, some of them have two or three years experience already uh, at the high school level. You know they've been they've been writing code for the last two or three mm -hmm. years, and so it's getting earlier and earlier. And actually, we're talking about some junior high programs. I just met with. 
couple folks from the state of Nebraska. They represent uh, you know the 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 the, uh, the education branch at uh, at our state capitol. And uh, had lunch with them today, and they're like, Jim, tell me about what you're thinking about junior high. <laughs> I just thought, wow, <laughs> we've really backed up the truck all the way and uh, to get some kids involved. So uh, anyways, along those lines, I think it's a good opportunity for you and I in the enterprise with both Christian and Ashton Absolutely. from the academic perspective to have these, these conversations. Kevin, you came at us with a whole bunch of questions. I think I'm going to just let you pose these and then start some dialogue between the four of us. Sure. So I actually... Um let me uh, share a screen here, and I promise it won't be death by PowerPoint, but uh, over the past few years, I've done quite a few sessions with partners and end users, and uh, can you uh, can you see my screen? It'll pop up here in just a second, I hope. Okay. Yep, there we go. You bet. All right, and this was kind of a... So uh, imagine you're an end user attending a lunch and learn session, and of course the phone would ring right at that time. <laughs> right as you start your presentation. Right as you're True to IT form, right? <laughs> a, so you'd be listening to a lunch and learn session put on by an outside guy, and that outside guy might be me. And what I really started looking at was at Arrow we had um, kind of five areas of focus. Uh, you know, so we're trying to sell technology, software, hardware, focused on mobility, focused on big data analytics, uh, focused on converged infrastructure, the agile data center, cloud, and then you know wrapping everything with security. And we always ended up presenting these as five different things that you could potentially look at, work on. Towards the end of these presentations, I really started wrapping them all together because for for the most part, it'd be tough for an IT department to, you know, just focus in one of these areas and not deal with the others. But it really became apparent that you know, big data, big data analytics was really driving a lot of this, and really coming to find that a lot of IT departments out there are having a little bit of an identity crisis these days because they they tended to be the guys that protected the data. They, you know, they kind of kept the users in line, and now with big data, it's all about um, them being an integral part of the company, and that they're providing value back to the company, not just as a cost center protecting the company's data, but working with business units to create value and to help drive the company forward. Now, I'll, I'll skip a couple of slides ahead. One of the things that has compounded this is the decision makers at an end user used to be when you when you wanted to sell some technology you'd go call on IT administrators you'd go call the networking guy security guy storage guy and then over the past few years it's become very heavily loaded towards application owners you'd go talk to mail and messaging or collaboration or the database guy now we're starting to see a lot more decisions are made around IT that don't even involve the IT department so business unit leaders, vice president of sales or vice president of marketing may decide on going to salesforce.com as opposed to deploying a package internally. Or the marketing team might spin up, a, instead of spinning up a database, they uh, pull company data, take it out to a uh, data warehousing company and uh, have them massage the data and pull the information out of it. So this was just a little, I just wanted to give you a little you know, kind of a background on kind of where my thoughts were coming from and what we're seeing as, as things change in the IT world of this evolution from being just kind of the folks that protected the data to the folks who are now um, really saddled with turning data into information and getting that back out to uh, out to the users. Kevin, it wasn't long ago that it, we've come full circle because it wasn't long ago in the days before IT departments, right, as big as they were, it was those businesses that were they would have they didn't call them IT but they'd have these tech guys embedded in their business units and they would yep. be making they would buy the solutions and somebody would come out and install them whatever you know whatever that was and as those back end uh, solutions became more and more complicated we saw the growth of the IT group and uh, so that's a fairly I mean when we think about the last 25 years that's a fairly new this idea of having these big gigantic IT departments is a fairly new process and going in but you're right we've come all the way back around where now we've been able like the business units are now making a lot of these decisions about what they're going to purchase and they're pushing mm -hmm. that down to technology to say deploy this I'm paying for it now deploy this yep no absolutely so when that starts to equate and I guess you know like the first one of the first things I was thinking about with with uh, 
Christian and Ashton is, you know, one of the things we're starting to see. And if you think about big data, uh, so we're a distributor for Oracle, and Arrow uses Oracle internally. And it's always surprised me that you know a, a good Oracle database costs you a lot of money. And of course, then there's a whole industry that you uh, go out and use to fine-tune your Oracle databases to make them actually work and, and work faster. And uh, and then big data really almost hits to the point of saying, hey, you've got all your data in those really nice, expensive Oracle databases, and now I want you to spend more money to actually get some tools to go out and mine these things. So we're starting to see a little bit of a trend where people are starting to question that upfront buying decision. You know, no, no, no slam on, on Oracle. It could be any database, but starting to see kind of a decision making work from the point of view of, um, hey, if I'm in, if I'm going to just focus on mining this on the backside, maybe I look at more of a um, a lighter structure up front, and maybe that structure is MySQL. You know, it could be any form of other databasing. Just wondering what you guys are seeing around kind of the so we, we focus a lot of effort around the mining of information, but what are you guys seeing or what what are you uh, talking about from a um, actual database structure point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think the trend has really gone towards having your databases be more to power your web applications and your kind of customer front ends and so forth. Uh, but, you know, there's a finite level to which that kind of makes sense to do. For example, if I'm going to run, you know, the customer uh, in, internal timesheet or payroll or any of those things, that is something that you know, a MySQL database that's well-secured and well-tuned will do very well at, whether it's a PHP application or otherwise. It's really when we start talking about these business decisions-based data sets where you're trying to comb through a lot of stuff really fast and it's kind of constantly streaming in and you're trying to bring value back to the company making decisions forward on how to increase revenue, find new technologies, discover new insights, that's where the technology, I think, sometimes it half falls on. Yeah, you should still use a database for that. Um, and the other half of the times, it just doesn't make sense. The data is unstructured. The data isn't relational in what a traditional tabular um, structure would suggest. And it really requires that kind of next step where you say, okay, I'm no longer really comfortable um, with this database, which while the database provides me, you know, high assurance that my data is preserved and it's in the right spot and so forth, I can go to this more pooled data structure uh, block model where, yeah, I replicate a few times because I'm not sure about the integrity of the system, but I know I'm going to be able to process stuff really fast um, over really large data sets, which is going to allow me to find insights that I wouldn't find if I'm just, you know, limiting the search query results of my table to the top 1,000 results. So, um I think people are starting to ask decisions on at what point, when my database becomes X amount of size, is it worth going to a NoSQL solution or is it worth staying in that kind of traditional uh, world? I think that's the one question people ask. Then the second question people ask is, you know, independent or irregardless of the data set size that I now have, have I gotten to a point where my data is streaming or my data is real-time or it's converging across multiple data stores and repositories at which point it no longer is cost-effective for me to try and maintain these different silos of high-grade expensive Oracle systems when I can throw together a lot more non-proprietary off-the-shelf hardware that will allow me to install the open source stacks that that deliver some of those key performance insights so I think we're at a point where the industry is definitely not prepared nor ready nor should it consider going all to that kind of NoSQL big data type environment. However, we are seeing more and more that core business applications are starting to require those tools, whereas before it was kind of the thing that stayed in the research department. No one wanted it on the production network. It really didn't give value to the typical Fortune 500 from a business analytics perspective, and uh, you know the use cases weren't as well defined yet, and I think we're starting to see big changes in that. Ashton, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of things that Christian said, especially the... Uh, specifically the, the data streaming and also the, the NoSQL databases, both of which I worked on a lot <clears throat> at my previous internship. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the 
uh, application Apache Storm, but one of the main things that focused on was doing the processing or at least pre-processing of the data as it comes in. And that's not necessarily uh, mutually exclusive with storing it in a SQL database or a NoSQL database, but you can, if you can get some of that processing up front, that can really, um, I think that, that has the potential to put the businesses that are doing that on a whole different level because they'll get results nearly real time um, and that can, that can make all the difference for, you know, as we see the, the stock trading and, and other, you know, highly volatile and di dynamic industries like that. Social media, uh, right? And social media, yeah, exactly. My, it, it, and, you know, I've also done stuff with, with mining social media for, to, to see how uh, events affect your reputation, like the Sony breach. So, um, getting a little bit off <laughs> off the track with that, but the the I don't I agree with Christian that SQL databases aren't going to go anywhere for a while. They're still the backbone of a lot of major companies, and they rightly should be because for some things they work pretty well. For other things, I think that there's going to be a push towards NoSQL and you know and uh, real time processing and things like that. But it's it's going to lag behind where the technology is at least for a while. I mean, there, there's always that sort of enterprise lag behind what's um, theoretically or even in practice possible uh, as, as you get the early adopters and then the widespread adoption. So I think that it's going to take some, some time before all the technologies are where they need to be to do that and also where the you know, mainstream enterprise companies are ready to adopt that and implement mm -hmm. it and right. take that investment. But I, I don't think that it's all that far off. Kevin, let me ask you in this because we always you alluded to this with the expense of Oracle, even with Microsoft. I mean, they're mm -hmm. we go at the enterprise applications, and and so we make the jump to MySQL, which while was open source for a long time, is now owned by Oracle. But they've chosen to kind of keep it out there, and mm -hmm. yet you do massive expense behind the scenes, right? Oftentimes, the you know the problem, yeah, there's no licensing fee, but then you're paying somebody to come implement or whatever. In your experiencing, are you seeing, from a cost perspective, those systems being significantly less expensive to run than an Oracle or Microsoft when we talk about purchasing? You know, um, we haven't. I, I'd say we haven't seen them take off in the U.S. yet. When I talk to my counterparts in Europe, MySQL is very popular in Europe, and uh, and I don't know if it's as you say the the solution base around it has been more refined there, but um, or it could just be you know people's comfort level, and I think people just don't have a comfort level with a. Um, you know, and, and I won't call it a shareware, but it's a free. You know, it's a free, technically free, but it's a very well-founded and well, you know, deserved. People are starting to look at it more and more, and we're starting to see people. Uh, and I think we'll see people kind of pick up on it as more um, users are making decisions. Um, Ashton said a couple of things that I think really hit home with this too. Is all IT departments, you know, that, or I should say, no IT departments are on the same page with each other. So they're all moving at different paces at different points in time. So as their, you, you think about their decision making processes. Right now, a lot of them are very nervous about making decisions because they don't have a lot of information. So I think we're going to see a lot more case studies, a lot more data coming out, and you know they'll be. And when you look at the social media aspect, that's where I think a lot of this takes off. Is we're seeing more and more people turn to. Um, hey, my company wants to move into big data. How do I do that? That used to be a question kind of taken to a vendor. Now it's kind of taken to um, Spiceworks and you know different online services to say, um, here's here's what size company I am today. Here's what my data center looks like. Um, the boss just told me I need to you know, head in this direction, I don't know where to start. So that's a lot of what we see. And, and you know, as time marches on, we'll see uh, IT departments try to formulate how they're going to make some of these decisions. Chris, Christian, for you and Ashton, uh, feeding off of that, how much in the future do you guys, are you being led to the cloud for some of this stuff as opposed to growing it yourself? I'm just going to buy it, right? I mean, you guys thinking along those lines, is that where you think the future is as far as when we, when we get into these databases? I'm just going to buy it from Amazon or Microsoft or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends. Um, I would say buying the resources, like the machines or the, the virtualization environment or the data center that's going to run those 
data stores. That might be something I outsource, and I, there might be some things that I keep in my internal network. There might be something I put in those types of environments. I think the one thing, though, that will stay more in-house than uh, be kind of made available as, as analytic modules is uh, there will be a much higher price for software engineers than what there has been in the past because mm -hmm. a lot of these um, data analytics-based initiatives where, you know, your boss walks in and says, I want a big data stack that does X, Y, and Z, um, database administrators don't have the same core skill set that a software engineer in computer science is going to have, and they're going to be an extreme disadvantage into implementing and adopting those technologies because they've been, uh, their training is much more focused on systems management and the database stored procedures and those kind of things, and the the new data stores of the future are a completely different animal, and it's it's the software engineer that really thrives in that environment, not the DBA. So mm -hmm. I really expect to see IT departments um, move their staffing, not just their IT environment, to be more uh, software engineering based focused and software development focused, and you're going to start to see less and less DBAs as these certain types of databases get phased out for um, certain portions of the business model. Um, several government agencies are finally getting to the point where they're trusting the Amazon GovCloud to put their data and their services out there, and um, so we're starting to see that at some of the more high security levels that um, this is a thing that we expect many people to be doing in the future, and, and I think it's fair to say that a lot of that's been happening already. So. I expect the infrastructure, a lot of people will continue to converge on the outside. The custom applications that actually deliver the business insight, I expect to continue to be done in-house with smart software engineers for the company. Yeah, I would fundamentally agree with that. I think it's it, the trade-off is uh, a couple things, one of which is do you want to have the full control over what it, what kind of processing is going to go on there, or is that a solution that you can kind of pick up off the shelf? Um, and also, <clears throat> do you want to be responsible in terms of, or who, who do you want to be responsible for the data and and uh, the the possibility of breaches there? Because um, I'm I, I'm not entirely sure what the cloud-based policies are if you have a breach there, who is liable for it and, and how that works, but that's uh, definitely should be part of the consideration, um, especially for, you know, areas where it's it's very important that that data stays secure. So um, it's good to see that, uh, that apparently government agencies are starting to adopt this, which kind of surprises me, um, but for, for the best, I think, in the long run. Um, it just is, there, there's challenging legal and um, sort of control areas where you, you don't have the access or the, uh, the I don't know what, what word other than control to really use over the, the data. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, balancing those will kind of dictate what works best for your specific needs. No, I, absolutely. And, and, and interesting, Christian, you brought up the, the software engineering aspect of it. I think, um, so speaking for kind of the IT end of the business, the thing that we had held from a cloud point of view was that a lot of people would put uh, you know, um, outlying uh, periphery applications and things into the cloud. But uh, up until about a year ago, I think I and many others had this feeling that your core applications, your core business uh, load um, would stay internal to your company. And I think it was June of last year, I was at a meeting and uh, a couple of fairly large IT departments were talking from the point of view that, uh, hey, we're, we're, you know, one of them was a healthcare company and they were moving patient records to the cloud. And we're, you know, the general response was, really? <laughs> you know, that seems like something you, you would not move to the cloud. But here was the logic behind them doing it was um, they had always had problems with HIPAA and meeting government governance requirements. And uh, the, the company that they went with from a cloud provider point of view basically had the engineering team and the resources to say, we will make you HIPAA compliant and we will give you the connectivity functions you're looking for and we will give you the security functions you're looking for. So now all of a sudden, things they were having problems with um, that they were going to have to go hire a bunch of engineering to uh, take care of and do, they were able to hire. So it wasn't so much going to the cloud for 
um, necessarily cloud-based resources, but it was uh, picking up a skill set and um, some extra resources around that that made it a much easier thing for them to move into. So I think that's what we're starting to see is a lot of the cloud providers aren't just offering compute on demand and capacity on demand. They're offering um, compliance. They're offering uh, logistics. They're offering uh, analytics. So they're starting to build out, and as you guys said, the, to do that, they're hiring software engineering folks to uh, fulfill on that. Yep. So is machine learning in the cloud a big deal, or is that just kind of at this point? I, I think it's a big deal. I think it's it's how people leverage it. I think people are struggling to figure out how to leverage it, but the people who have niche applications where it works really well, it's, uh, it's a game changer. Um, we've uh, seen a lot of cool research in machine learning with intrusion detection where you can build... Um, you know, amazing classifiers and patterns to detect anomalous behavior that you wouldn't have been able to do without machine learning uh, in the same level of power before. So there is um, definitely targeted applications where it's incredibly powerful. Um, the Microsoft Azure machine learning library comes to mind as something that a lot of um, enterprises can kind of adopt as a hands-on ready thing. Again, the people who are going to be the most qualified to implement that is going to be your software engineers. Uh, but I, I totally agree with Kevin in the sense that, you know, the size of your business, if you're a small business, it's, the, it's, it's very cost prohibitive for you to uh, hire the in-house talent to do some of those things when other people have it figured out. But when you're a large Fortune 500 company, um, you have the resources to do it in-house. You're going to want to do it in-house. And so that's where... Uh, those types of software engineers are, are doing well. Yeah, and I, I think I particularly like it because it gives sort of uh, a more accurate uh, answer to the question of what's working and what's not working. So if you're maybe your uh, your Amazon, and you want to know you know <clears throat> what what sorts of variables affect whether someone purchases a product or not. Um, and you know you could you could do a survey and you could ask people um, or you could know kind of make educated guesses based on what you think people like and what what is you know pleasing to the eye and stuff like that or you could use this uh, if you you know record the data of what what pages they're looking at and what the prices were and how they fluctuated um, and what the purchases were and the, the cost of those purchases then you could have um, a much more accurate model and exploit that to, to have Tr tr more truthful answers in, in some cases, and I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. It kind of gives like a statistical or analytic approach versus just sort of a um, even even surveys and stuff are, are kind of tied to how people answer and what they think versus what they, how they actually act. And I think that's a really big difference. And that's just one example, but uh, the point is mainly that there's huge potential here to exploit the data that you have to to make a huge difference. No, that's that's very true. Um, just because I'm based in the the Twin Cities, so Target Corp is uh, nearby, so I end up knowing people who work or or have dealt there. And you look at where Target is heading towards with their apps on their tablets and phones, and that it's it's to um, you know guide you through the store. It's to look at here's what you bought last time you were here. Oh, when you were at Target.com, here's what you researched. And and to your point, in a lot of cases, um, uh, surveys or interviews. Many times, people, you know, human beings, we we lots of times say what we want people to. You know, we say what we think people want to hear versus our decision-making processes. If we just watch how we buy things and how we do things, it's probably a more honest view of that. So, you know, whether it's the machine learning aspect, the social media aspect, um, on one hand, you know, it can be viewed as that creepy big brother thing looking over your shoulder, keeping an eye on you. But on the other hand, it does it does give you a much better view of you know why you make decisions you make and uh, you know why you you know how how you arrive at those decisions. So um, yeah, and one quick thing about Target, they're they're really good at that. Um, if you haven't or if you heard of the book, The Signal and the Noise. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, I, I love that book, and one of the examples I have from that is about Target. Um, they have a, a Target has a system in place where it can kind of tell when people are pregnant um, and start mm -hmm. marketing ads at them for that. And it, it's funny because there have been cases where, like, you know, parents didn't know that yes, that their, yes. their 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 daughter was pregnant, and, and they're getting these ads from Target, and it's like, yeah. 
so it's almost better than than what you it, it, like you were saying. It's sometimes more truthful than it, you it would is. say because it's yeah. how you act. Yeah. And 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 actually, that one plays out into a whole other thing we're starting to see is, uh, and once again, Europe has probably done this a little more than we have. But that that example falls into an area of security versus privacy. And you know, I think in America, a lot of times we think things are secure because uh, and privacy are the same thing. But uh, in in lots of ways, we're starting to deal more and more with the difference between securing data and keeping data private. Are could be two uh, exclusive things. So, you know, it's just kind of opening up a new uh, a new realm or a new challenge there. Yeah, I think there are like kind of ethical implications there. Where you know, I I, I wonder at one point people are going to say. Um, well, I don't want to make a purchase here if I'm going to be heavily tracked and mm-hmm. you know it, my information is going to be recorded and, and used to try and market to me. Like I just want to buy things and, and be done with it. Like I don't but need all this extra stuff that's part of my privacy. That, right? I mean, there's huge benefits at times for them knowing what you. I mean, it makes things more convenient at times if they if they start narrowing in. I don't have to look all over the store. It's like, hey, I'm kind of feeling like you're probably going to be looking for this. Here it is. Yeah. I think that's that's like one case where it's a good benefit. I think a more uh, a better case for privacy is probably on the social media side, where you mm-hmm. know it's a free service and uh, it's free because you are kind of the product and your information is part of what what they're using. So um, yeah, I think it, I, I think in general be- though people are opting for convenience over their privacy. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. I'm not sure that everybody knows like. I, I'm I'm going to admit I haven't read every page of the privacy policy for Facebook and I have an account there um, or you know even Google Plus or what have you it's it's I I don't I mean it just comes down to I don't have the time or the intense desire to read through all of those pages it's not that I'm necessarily not concerned about my privacy it's just that it's, convenience it's, is very enticing, I guess. It's the click by, you know. You, you, yeah. you, people. We don't read those things. We just click by them, and we we trust that it's a good company. And 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 our IT department dug into those a lot when we first started playing around with the the cloud aspect, whether it was Dropbox or Box or OneDrive. Um, and our our guys found some pretty pretty interesting stuff that you know. Um, Liability, not liability over data loss, but you know the lack of, and and so we're just providing you a space to put your stuff, and if your stuff gets hacked, that's not our fault. If your stuff, you know, gets uh, viruses, that's not our fault. Um, so to your point on security, it that that's the one aspect of that stuff that it's good to dig in a bit, but otherwise, you know, it's it's um, it kind of is what it is. Kevin, it's uh, in the notes you had said at the VM Partner Exchange, embedded security was the buzz. What are your thoughts on embedding security in software-defined networks? Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So, you know, back to one of the uh, the slides I started with, where it was always my common thing of showing all these different areas within IT, and then drawing a big security circle around the whole thing. And, and my point was always, regardless of where your data is, whether it's in the cloud, whether it's off in a big data warehouse, whether it's in mobile user devices, you're the IT department, it's your responsibility. It's a subtle thing, but I'm kind of a visual guy, and, and what I really looked at from a lot of the announcements at um, at uh, VMworld and the partner exchange was instead of looking at security as being this big balloon around everything, it was more about what does security need to look like for mobile devices and how do we embed that into the network or the functions that deal with those mobile devices? What does security look like in, in a big data environment? What does security look like in the data center? And so it was a little bit more of that where we start talking about intrusion detection, access control, um, you know, UTM uh, and and user authentication and just a lot of the other security buzzwords, uh, data loss prevention. Where do those things actually fit, and and how do we correspond those better? So I was just curious what uh, what you guys are seeing. Um, am am I on the right track with looking at things from breaking them down into individual component areas and and looking at them being more embedded in the network, or uh, what are you guys seeing? Yeah, I think in I think in SDN when we talk about components, a lot of the components themselves are the 
different tiers of the uh, networking model themselves. So uh, even even trying to draw the circle around the network itself, there are huge advantages and disadvantages when you start moving into the software-defined networking world. Um, the biggest advantage, both to security and to kind of next generating uh, next generation computing, is the fact that your applications now have a different privileges and level of control over the network. Where, you know, in a in a very kind of broad, simple home case, say say I want to watch a Blu-ray movie and I want to prioritize that bandwidth, then when my Blu-ray player turns on, it tells the network, hey, prioritize more bandwidth to this particular line so that I don't buffer. That's just kind of the analogy I give. It doesn't make sense in the enterprise, but it gives you the idea of the applications now have the ability to control the network environment for the first time where it's not kind of these automated stagnant set of rules that are sitting on a switch somewhere. Um, that's a big deal because that changes both the performance and reliability of applications that are network enabled and also can change the security posture. I mean very quickly you can have applications that say hey the suspect, this suspect uh, network traffic that I'm seeing and, and I'm seeing these weird entries in my logs why don't you turn off this IP at the switch for 5-10 minutes or for a day or so forth. I mean, these are just capabilities that are going to be automated by software-defined networking that um, used to be a very manual monitoring job for an IT incident analyst. Um, on, the, on the flip side of that, uh, the whole boom in software-defined networking, and I think for the average guy, um, it, it, it's not always clear why did software-defined networking become so big so fast uh, over some of the other technologies. And for the enterprise IT environment, all of us know what that answer is. The switches that we've been buying for years, the Cisco's, the Arista's, the Juniper's, the Fujitsu's, are all very expensive, tens of thousands of dollars per switch, all the operating systems on them are proprietary, and whenever I want to integrate and expand my network to new parts, I still have to keep buying the same proprietary stuff from those vendors because that's the type of switch I bought. With SDN, it is the first enterprise-ready-slash-feasible uh, model where they've taken out the controller logic from the switch and made it a dummy switch. All the switch can do is route flows over the um, ASIC controllers, and what that's done basically is created an open source operating system for switching, routing, and, and doing protocol design. Um, and, and that open flow model has basically said the controller can run multiple switches in, in different parts of your network and it's no longer closed source. And this is the first major thing that takes the grip away from the Cisco's and the Juniper's because now you have an open source model for building and deploying switches. And in many cases I've studied, the financial considerations are huge. I mean, we're talking 70% less operating system costs for running the same type of network using an SDN model. Mm -hmm. um, with that, though, you have to think a lot about how does the security posture of that network change? Well, with a controller running all these dummy switches, that controller... As of now, I think there, there's some solutions out there that have addressed this. And just like Hadoop used to be a single point of failure with its name node master controller, SDN is a single point of failure in traditional setups with its controller. Um, I think that's going to be pretty pretty well fleshed out in the next year or so. I don't expect that to be a thing people keep talking about over and over again. Um, the more interesting area of the research, and this is where I've started spending a lot of my time and will be next year, is using SDN at a WAN or edge device perimeter network where you know it's it's one thing if I'm running SDN inside my private enterprise network where I got high security controls over who's in what segment of the network but when I'm using SDN to bridge two different networks over the internet or doing all these types of routing things where I don't have control of the physical location of the box what is what is the um, defense mechanisms that that controller has in place. And mm -hmm. one of the big features of the controller is that you can put custom applications on it that control specific features of the network and then talk to other regular applications on the network. Who's to say that someone isn't going to hijack and put a rogue application on your controller while you aren't looking at that edge network and then have it start doing completely different behaviors? Um, on the converse side, SDN can be incredibly effective in security. For example, if I want to keep rotating what um, 
networks my computers are connected to within the network and move them around at random intervals. SDN provides an incredibly powerful way to do that both for virtualized and physical clients. So um, there's a lot of ups and downs and I think the boom the boom is happening not so much because we have the ability to do dynamic networking and respond to things much more fluidly based on automated network intelligence but it's the cost. The cost mm -hmm. is the number one driving factor here. I don't think cost was as big of a driving factor with Hadoop, although it was brought up a lot. The cost affiliated with SDN is the number one driver, and whether you're talking about, you know, uh, the Department of Defense or a Fortune 500 company figuring out, hey, we got a tighter budget for IT this year. How are we going to keep doing? How are we going to keep growing our services and offerings with a smaller budget? Everyone's looking to this. Who's asking that question? Smaller budget for the next fiscal year, but I still have to grow. What's the answer? And, and time and time again, we see it's SDN. So um, I think that even though some people kind of question the model and what the current iteration is, the embedded security of SDN is going to be huge because people want to be able to say, hey, I made it both 70% cheaper for you to run this entire network, and it's just as secure, if not better. So that's going to be one of the biggest questions in SDN over the next two to three years is how to, how to prove the security and viability of the solution. Yeah, and just to come full circle back to what Kevin was kind of talking about with whether it's better to try and do the sort of perimeter approach or, or the holistic approach to uh, network security or on a case-by-case -case basis, I think it's in some ways just psychologically and practically it's probably easier to approach it on a system-by-system -system basis because there are so many, th th there's just such... Uh, complexity that you're kind of missing once you try and secure... I mean, not, not necessarily that you're advocating a perimeter approach, which is kind of inherently flawed, because it's going. It's kind of inevitable that there's going to be attackers that get in eventually. And I think that's why it's important to have those system uh, points of, of security to sort of mitigate that and, and uh, try and avoid the, the larger loss once... Uh, once that happens, because it's it's kind of not an if thing; it's more of a when thing. Yeah. Uh, and furthermore, it's also probably easier to you know have some people assigned to and and prioritizing these security measures on a specific system than just being a you know all around everything security, which is just too broad to be effective. No, absolutely, and, and I think that's um, so you know lot, lots of different angles on it. The the security aspect, um, the the community I deal with, so vendors like uh, RSA and Trend Micro and WebSense and uh, Blue Coat, you know, they're, they're very excited from the point of view of taking their technology and getting it embedded into the SDN strategies. And um, to your point, you know, in, in one of the other things we're seeing about um, everything we're talking about drives more network traffic. And traditionally, when we talk about tr traditional networks, it's always, well, you need more ports. And I think SDN is looking at things from, well, maybe I don't need more ports, maybe I need smarter ports, or maybe I need faster ports. And let's, let's get out of a port, you know, a port is... 10 gig or 1 gig or 40 gig and and look at the number of ports you have. Um, so to me, that's one of the backsides of SDN is it's starting to get a discussion going that's not a port-based discussion. It's more about network traffic. It's more about what are you trying to achieve, and that that seems to be uh, you know kind of an enlightening thing from uh, the whole network discussion. Newer, um, some newer technologies. We'll shift a little bit here. Newer, some newer technologies like Docker and this this new Microsoft uh, Nano server, which is not even out yet, but lighter, faster, kind of a response maybe to what's going on in the in the market. And I'll admit, I don't know a lot about the container space that's coming out. I hear that word a lot, but I don't know much about it. Kevin, are you seeing from an enterprise standpoint? It would be really early for you guys to be thinking about this. Are you starting to talk about it? Some of that already? Yeah, you know where we are, and you know where it came from is, so I'll use an example in, in my company. Um, as a manager, I have to approve expense reports. So how do I approve expense reports? I get out my laptop, I make a VPN connection, I log into the Oracle uh, um, uh financial system, I go to the account, you know, to, to that area, I look at expense reports and I approve them. What's the biggest ask out of our management team? Uh, geez, I wish there was an app 
that that app could take me straight to approving expense reports. So we're, we're, we're turned into this app-minded world of hitting our own IT departments with, I don't want to go through all that stuff because you know that's the same process an inside salesperson uses to uh, put in a sales order. I just want to go in and look at expense reports. So that started this momentum around apps to do different things. But when you look at apps, two things popped up is the average person writing an app. In the past, they had written them always for um, company-owned equipment. And now you're writing apps that are used on non-company-owned equipment. So you know, security, where's the data parked, how, how is that being used? Uh, and then the other aspect of it is writing all these apps, is it really less expensive? Because if I'm writing this app and it has to run on something and it runs on top of an operating system and the operating system runs on top of something that's virtualized, all of a sudden my cost model looks kind of bad for that app. So Docker and NanoServer are really trying to push this idea of, hey, maybe I don't need to have a guest OS to run these apps on. Maybe if I containerize these apps, they'll run on top of a virtualization model all by themselves. So that so um, in the enterprise, I, I wouldn't say we're seeing it adopted widely, but it's being talked about much more rapidly than I would have seen stu uh, things like that be talked about in the past. Ashton, are you seeing that? You guys, either you, Ashton, Christian, you guys seeing that yet? I don't really have that much experience with containers. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe Christian has more to say about them. Yeah, I think the the container model has become popular because of the just just like we were talking earlier about different requirements for network speed and for control and so forth. We talk about different environments that applications tend to do bigger and better, and in and in some cases, having that high powered workstation is more expensive to your operating costs because the application really doesn't need anything more than its own small little world. So mm -hmm. I think that's another really big example where the container model has been primarily driven by uh, cost considerations, and we've had the technology and the virtualization and the hypervisors available to do this, but I think now they're making it very easy for the enterprise to rapidly deploy these solutions and manage and migrate applications to different environments for failover, and these are types of things that we've tried to make work in a very smooth and streamlined way, and this is the first kind of era where that kind of happens at a, at a higher level than what we were doing three to five years ago. Now, the, the other thing, Jim, that we see, and it ties a couple of bullet points together of, of Docker, Nano, you know, this, this granularity down to an application level um, is really pushing, you know, the, the mobility factor. You know, I, I want all this stuff on my tablet. I want, I want all of it on my phone. So, you know, it's that best consumption model for the user. Um, we just got done talking about SDN a little bit, but um, some of the industry experts looking at the impact if things like Docker or Nano Server or applications in general become embraced very heavily, that puts a lot, uh, it could potentially put a lot more traffic on your network. So whether that's your network internal to the company of driving data back and forth between big data sets and pushing that out to users or um, out to the, you know, the, the network uh, uh, in the field, whether it's your Wi-Fi network inside of your buildings or uh, the network uh, um, that people are accessing through. So we are looking also from that point of view that a lot of this uh, flexibility and ease of use could uh, really put a load on networks in general. For sure. You know, I want to... Kevin, you got a great question here. I almost want to save it for a, a follow-up <laughs> show. We've been going, you know, 55 minutes, and I, we've been talking a lot about apps and, and SDN and network security and some of those kinds of things. And when we think about the future of big data, that uh, that we might be able to fill up. <laughs> That's well, a whole other show, to be quite let's, honest. Let's do, let's, do a, let's do another show on yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, think, I think for folks that are listening... We'll yeah we'll do a part two Kevin we'll get you scheduled to come back and you know the question will be Hadoop so what's next right Hadoop is good it's been good but what's next and I I think we'll we'll uh, try and tackle that here uh, in the next show um, so as we kind of start to wrap this up Kevin anything that you as or all three of you anything you guys want to put a bow on as we kind of bring this up for a close. Yeah, I would just say the, the, one, the one theme that we've seen across all these different topics that has driven a lot of the, I think, the innovation is that 
a lot of these technologies are things that have been within our reach for several years now, and we just haven't found the right model or way of deploying it and making it uh, a solution that can be commonplace for the enterprise. And I think now we're starting to see that some of that innovation is being forced because of the, the cost model. And as many uh, corporations, small businesses, government agencies keep struggling with how to do more with less budget, it has driven the majority of the things we've talked about tonight. Um, so there's actually some upsides to having some reduced budget because it forces your people to think how to do more with less, which is mm -hmm. what we call smart engineering. Yeah. Ashton, yeah, I, mean, I also wonder if it's not just the cost side but the uh, benefit side where if you are an early adopter of these and you do it well, then you have an advantage over your... Your, your competitors sure. and that can be um, in some ways a bigger deal because when you're not you, you know a lot of companies might look at costs as um, you know hopefully you can minimize those down the roads down the road but the the real uh, drive is is if you have these projects that are going to generate revenue and going to expand the company then uh, that can be really important so mm -hmm. I think both sides of it will is is going to be interesting to see um, drive this to uh, new levels and it's a good field to be in, I think. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No. And Kevin, we, we always say in the enterprise, do more with less, but it's not like IT budgets have been reduced to zero, right? We're, yeah, in some know. cases, it's doing more with the same or even doing more with more. I mean, we, we yeah. continue to find ways from the enterprise. When value is found, it can also, cost can be justified at that point. And so we, when we begin to look at it, it's not just always like, what can we do, but what can we do that brings value from that standpoint? And can that value justify more expenditure, right? I mean, you see that? Absolutely. Hey, you, you think about, I, I'm, I'm waiting for the day, and I see it once in a while, but I'm waiting for the day when you know, you're in a quarterly business review and the different sales managers are presenting, and one of them has just blown away all of his numbers and everything, and one of his bullets on there is the IT department really helped me out with being able to data mine, you know, um, renewal revenue. I, I blew away my renewals because you know they they helped me pull this together. That, that you know that will get you money. That will get sales departments can go find dollars from vendors to go do things. And 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 I think the other thing as the guys were talking there. CIOs network with each other, and CIOs talk to each other, and it's very common that uh, you know my CIO will, and I'm I'm not really affiliated with the IT department. I'm you know the 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 engineering side of our company, but I call on IT departments, and he'll you know we'll talk about things from the point of view of things that Arrow is doing that you know he can brag about with his friends uh, from a CI CIO point of view, but it's also one of you know hey. You guys are kicking our butt in this area. How are you doing that? And and I think we it gets back to kind of what we started with is the the discussion that the face of the IT department, the face of IT has changed, and it's not just the data protector folks anymore. It's the information management kind of folks. So yeah, uh, you know, I'm envisioning two things: a set of T-shirts. The first is the remain calm. The data scientists are on their way. <laughs> And and the other one is we've got to get we got to get these other two guys here with white hats on horses, you know, riding into town <laughs> to save the day. Um, but it is but it is one of those where I think as an industry we have to drive this point that um, this is the next evolution of IT, and and we're on this verge of making this change, and it's very data information driven, and the data science aspect is is I think what's really going to bring this thing together. Yeah, I Boom. think that I think oh, Christian. Boom! That just happened. Uh, I think the days of the IT cost center are over. I mean, this has yes. been we've been moving in that direction where IT is now uh, is just generating revenue in the organization, and we've uh, we've you know we're we're beyond we're a decade now beyond IT just being infrastructure, just being about email and networking and you know those kinds of things that you and I grew up with. These guys know nothing of it. They just expect that stuff to happen, right? We we spent a decade or two. Uh, making all that happen and getting all that in place so that stuff just works and now these guys get to benefit from you know having that infrastructure in place to be able to do I think which is the really cool stuff which is turn this stuff into money right yes absolutely yeah nope, so. absolutely so pretty cool. Well, guys, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for coming on. We'll get rescheduled Absolutely. to talk about the future of big data. That'll be fun. I think that's going to be a fun uh, Cyber Frontiers to do. We'll put these two guys, uh, we'll give them homework. 
and say, all right, come, uh, come ready to talk about the future of big data and what that means uh, beyond Hadoop. Uh, because that's really Hadoop has become kind of the poster child for big yep. data right, when we talk about it. And it's the standard. So, yeah, it's it's what everybody kind of goes to, and so that'll be uh, an exciting uh, Cyber Frontiers coming up. If you're new to Cyber Frontiers, you just caught on to what we're doing here, we'd love to have you go over there and just get this automatically downloaded. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you know how to download this to a podcatcher, <laughs> either on the iPhone, I don't have to explain that to you, or Android. Lots of great technologies. We have all those subscription links available at theaverageguy.tv slash subscribe. Super easy. Head over there. Big page. All kinds of ways. Video, audio, all kinds of stuff. If you want to know what's want to know what's going on here in the network, a great way to stay uh, up with us. We've got 19 of these in the back catalog, and uh, you might want to go binge listen to them right now if you just caught this one for the very first time. A good idea. It'll take you 19 hours. They're about an hour in length each one of them, and uh, love to have you go through. Get your feedback as well. You can send that to me. Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv uh, for doing that. And like I said, we have brand new video options as well. If you want to watch it on YouTube or if you want to download it to your phone or your tablet, we've got both video large and small available for you to watch those. Again, go out to TheAverageGuy.tv slash subscribe. If you're using uh, Amazon and you want to benefit the Tech Guy or the uh, the Average Guy Tech Scholarship Fund, you can do that. Just use TheAverageGuy.tv slash Amazon. And don't forget, Christian's got a pretty powerful network going on uh, out of uh, uh, undisclosed location somewhere in the Northeast that uh, is called Maple Grove Partners. And if you are looking for web hosting, I mentioned that up front, uh, he'd love to take that on. So go to maplegrovepartners.com. We're actually going to have Christian on Home Gadget Geeks in the next, oh, I think we're in June at this point. Christian was the next slot I could get you in. But Kyle Wilcox had asked the question in the community, what's going on there at Maple Grove Partners? So Christian, thanks for being willing to jump on. He'll take a whole session of Home Gadget Geeks, walk through the network there, how he has it set up. It'll be really cool uh, to kind of get. We've done a home tech tip on that, but uh, Christian, it'll be fun to get some more detail for sure. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. So we'll say thanks for listening. We'll be, uh, if you're listening live, stay around for a few minutes. We'll do a post show. I've got to wrap it up fairly quickly. I have to head off to work for an evening podcast. But uh, if you're listening, we want to say thanks for coming out tonight. Or if you're listening recorded, we want to say thanks for subscribing or listening to this. And we'll be back, I don't know, a couple more weeks with the next Cyber Frontiers. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.